Welcome to Coping with COVID-19. This editorially independent program from the editors of Modern Aesthetics Magazine and Practical Dermatology Magazine is made possible with advertising from Care Credit. This is part one of episode nine. Doctors McCreen Alexiades, Jeffrey Dover, Roy Geronimus, David McDaniel, and E. Victor Ross discuss how clinical trials are adapting in the face of the COVID-19 pandemic and discuss the potential impact on future developments. We're going to just be having an open discussion on clinical trials and how they've impacted our practices and how COVID-19 and the pandemic has impacted what we're doing. I'm going to open with David McDaniel. David, perhaps you could tell us a bit about the guidelines that have recently been distributed uh, by the federal government on clinical trials. Yes, the FDA just recently issued what I understand are non-binding uh, guidelines, but their FDA guidance on the conduct of clinical trials in the U.S. for medical products. So I, I believe my interpretation would be devices, uh, FDA-regulated uh, drugs. Uh, it really wasn't very clear for those of you who might do cosmetic, cosmeceutical studies, which we do. Uh, I'm assuming by extension we apply these, although this is uh, not for cosmetic studies directly, but it's basically guidance for what to do during the COVID-19 epidemic pandemic. And it's guidance for, it's a broad document for those of you who are listening, it would be worthwhile reading it in detail. But it basically outlines uh, some of the key principles I think are paramount is the safety and health of our subject volunteers, study participants. I think that's one. Uh, second, uh, if our institutions we work for, or for those of us in private practice or whatever institution, if we are under the authority for screening for COVID-19, um, regardless of which authority and whether it's your private practice or you're in a group or with a corporation or a hospital, um, they have suggestions that you do need to comply with those screening things to protect, in my understanding, is not only your subjects, but also your staff and the, the people at your facility. And then I think one of the third ones where there appears to be the ability to not really override IRBs, but if the necessity is there to make changes, again, this is my interpretation of these new rules, if, if we need to make changes to protect the health and safety of our uh, volunteers and subjects, and we have to deviate in some way uh, with the IRB, we can proceed to do that. We still have to report it to the IRB, we have to properly document it. And then they have a very nice list that covers many different uh, scenarios that can apply to us from drugs or, or uh, you know, it sort of depends if it's a drug and it has a risk versus perhaps a device that needs a therapeutic treatment versus a follow-up for a study. And there are a variety of options of how we might track things, which perhaps we can all discuss ranging from video grading to uh, questionnaires to telephone. So I don't know if that gives you a little bit of a flavor of it. David, thank you. McCreen, based on what David's just told us and your own experience in New York over the last month, how has COVID impacted your clinical trials unit? COVID-19 has impacted uh, the execution of the clinical trials quite profoundly. Uh, we immediately implemented lockdown measures in New York, and that meant a cessation of treatment and face-to-face -face visits. 
we sprang into uh, place to issue a change of research form with the IRB in coordination uh, with our sponsors. Uh, and I will say that I was very grateful that in the case of one of my sponsors in uh, clinical trials that I'm running along with Roy on the call, uh, that is Allergan, was very ahead of the curve in working with us to list methodically the changes because as uh, David mentioned, the FDA guidance doesn't require you to inform the IRB of the changes ahead of time if it's to protect the subject's safety, but they would prefer it. So we did put in place a change in research submission form that encompasses the changes to the protocol that had to be done in order to adhere to the lockdown measures. So we then implemented tele telemedicine very quickly in my practice, and I executed all the follow-up visits for the subjects that were already in follow-up via telemedicine, documented those, and now we, we have our updated source documents. So we had to update and change our source documents to include, as David alluded to, COVID screening on each of these follow-up visits and to include a redacted set of testing that we were going to do via telemedicine as opposed to in-person testing. So for example, we adapted a neuro exam that could be done virtually. Now that those forms are completed, we sent the change of research submission form to the IRB so they're aware. But what I did do ahead of this meeting, you'll be happy to know, is I spoke with Stephanie Manson-Brown, who's in charge of Allergan Research globally. And I asked her specifically, are protocol amendments required at this time? Because we obviously already know the steps that we cannot execute. And she said, not at this time. The change in research form right now is adequate. But I then asked about protocol deviations because clearly we're deviating from the protocol. And what she said was that we would have to file these deviations. I didn't get that from the FDA mandate and the communications I'm having with the IRB thus far because it seems to me if you have a change of research form in place, by definition, you don't, you don't need to file deviations if you're adhering to those. Well, Karina, thank you very much. Vic, how about you? How has this impacted your practice? I know you do a lot of trials. Well, we're only doing three, and they, we basically got a, a note uh, the Monday after all this happened, I guess it was the 23rd, that we had to cease and desist all research activities. That just came from our Institutional Review Board and Clinical Research Services, which are intertwined. So they just said suspend everything, basically. They didn't really have allowances for telemedicine, although I should bring that up. So the sponsors were made aware and we were made aware. I tried to do a couple things after that and got spanked, so I, I had to stop. But uh, yeah, we're, we pretty much were told just to stop, and that's where we are right now. And so Vic, presumably you then reached out to the sponsors and told them what happened, and what was their response to that? Well, they, they already knew about it. I mean, they knew about it because everybody knows all this is going on. So they were, they were fairly uh, accommodating. They realized we can't see our patients in person. We're trying to change those follow-ups, but the follow-ups are hard because the photography is integral to some of them and if they do a home photo it's not going to have the quality that's going to stand up to a good clinical trial and some of them were work interventions where we had to intervene and they were still in the process of having that done so some of these things you just can't do virtually and our third protocol was a home-based protocol but they had to get the clinical training for the protocol here at the clinic and we really couldn't do that virtually either because we couldn't get the device to them and so we're pretty much just stopped right now and I don't see any easy way out. 
Thanks, Roy. What's your experience being like? Just by way of background, we have uh, about 13 trials going on presently, so we have a large team. And we also, as McCree mentioned, have this, the stay-at-home orders in, in the city of New York. So this obviously has thrown a, a big monkey wrench into our clinical trials uh, across the board. So uh, McCree had mentioned this change in research form that, that was required by Allergan, uh, and that we have utilized for that particular study. But there are other study uh, companies that are comfortable with just email notification. So we don't have to go through that uh, change in research form uh, completion process. Now, some sponsors are just continuing uh, to allow us to do what we've been doing, and others have been a little bit more flexible by amending protocols to allow for extra visits. And others are just pausing the entire study, so where things just are not happening at all. So a lot of this depends upon where we are in the treatment phase or where we are in the follow-up phase uh, with particular patients. We have been using uh, the virtual visits as much as possible just to make sure that the patients are um, you know, doing well and that there are no particular problems and we're documenting what we can in terms of uh, safety checks and reporting any changes uh, as necessary. Uh, we've also been, uh, I know the, uh, CI, excuse me, the CIRB has uh, weekly Zoom webinars every Wednesday uh, that we're participating in uh, just to provide some feedback as to what we should be doing on the various protocols. So it does vary uh, from study to study. The companies are really all over the place in terms of what they require, what they need. And again, a lot depends upon where we're at in particular. Roy, thank you. Thank you all. It's interesting that the variation in the IRB response across the country. Our IRB at first was, uh, had no response whatsoever. They, they were totally unhelpful. Uh, that's our own regional IRB. And they said, do uh, whatever you want. We have no guidelines whatsoever because none have been issued. So most of this in our experience has come from the sponsors. Now, some of these are big multi-center trials with very well-funded companies like Allergan with protocols and a hierarchy of expertise in-house. Others are small companies uh, that are uh, on financially very thin ice. I spoke to one yesterday. They're fighting for their financial lives and they've been told by their CEO to trim all budgets. So all studies as of yesterday were stopped in their tracks. And they said, do not spend one other cent on this trial. We have no money to pay for it. So we're gonna lose all this data. We're halfway through these, what we think are really interesting investigated initiated trials, which are going to be paralyzed. And halfway through a trial, it's not half a trial, it ends up being a non-trial because you're missing all the final endpoints to show whether the intervention worked or not. So it's fr you could tell the head of research had trouble speaking because he was so upset and having to tell me they were going to stop the trial. I, of course, was calmer than he because I was waiting for the call. I just know they're not financially viable. If they continue this trial, they won't have any funds to run the company. So I think it depends on where you live, what sort of trials you're doing. But in general, it's impacted all of our trials. The other thing to add is we have some trials that are still photography with a video component and home videos are a total waste of time. They're as bad as the ones in the office and home photography, as Vic said, is terrible because the quality is not high enough. So video visits is the one thing that does work, but it's not as good as you know, because the quality of the image as the 
real thing. So it's really impacted our trials. David, can you elaborate on your own experience other than the guidelines? Well, I think we actually might be on one of those trials where they've suggested video and I proposed actually giving uh, instructions for how to use the front end of the camera, higher resolution, things like that. But it's, uh, it's very challenging. We happen to have two trials that are near, they've completed their treatment phase. Uh, one was a device, one was a cosmeceutical. So really the photos, uh, the final photos, if they're done months down the road, probably do still salvage the study as long as it's not stopped. For example, in your case, uh, you, you won't have an endpoint. We probably have an endpoint. I don't know where that endpoint is. I don't know what happens to the statistics and all of those issues. Um, but we had some people and we were told for a hard stop like Vic and I had people that had biopsies that we had to have them return to take sutures out. So we just, we didn't have these guidelines. We just did it. But uh, I'm curious what happens when we bring these people back in. I, I'd be interested in what everybody thinks. That two of my concerns are, do we have to screen these uh, subjects and volunteers when they come back for their follow-up? Do we, if we um, start a new study, some sponsors have been talking to us about new studies, what are the IRBs going to do? Are they going to add a lot of uh, rules and regulations for screening? How do we disclose risks? Is there a risk to come to our sites to volunteer for a study? There's no vaccine, so there's some great minds on here. Uh, if anybody has an idea, but I wonder how we restart. It's well, David, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Before we go to the future, I just I'll recount a story. I recall the week before we closed our practice, which is now four weeks ago, my study coordinator and director of our research unit, which is fairly large, came to me and she said, I don't know what to do about all these visitors who come from the trials, uh, from the clinical trial organizations or from the companies. They travel around the country and go from one airport to the next. I'm not sure it's a good idea for them to be coming to the office. And I said, don't worry. We'll give them a special place to go. We'll give them their own room. We'll, we won't expose any of our staff to them and we're gonna keep doing the visits. Within 24 hours, we canceled all visits and three days later, we closed our office. And it's amazing how quickly this all transpired. We went from nothing to a, basically a full lockdown as McQueen has described and Roy has described. So it's amazing how fast it's been. I just got an email just before we started from a colleague explaining to my staff my entire staff, not just research staff, that as hard as it was to shut down the office, it's going to be much harder to restart for all the reasons you just described. Who's positive, who's not, who has antibodies, who doesn't? What do we do to screen? How many people are allowed in the office at once? If these are non-vital studies, not life and death, can we even do them? Or will the companies keep up the sponsorship? Will some of the companies be in business or out of business? So, McQueen, let's start with you. What do you think is going to happen going forward? Well, I did do my homework before this uh, conference call for you, Jeff, uh, because I wanted to make sure that it was at the highest standards. And I want to thank the teams that I've reached out and spoken to because they provided to me in writing their plan. And everything is, as David said, on pause. So they have completely paused all research initiatives going forward. 
Uh, they've paused uh, any plans for moving forward with new studies or enrollment. They haven't said that they've dropped them from the roster per se, but there is a definite pause at this time until all those questions are answered. Uh, right, a COVID antibody test is not useful uh, for people who are infected and not yet antibody positive. So screening for them is going to be a big issue when we reopen, whether it's clinical practice or research. And then it begs the question as far as, you know, the bioethics and putting in all the necessary guidelines so that we don't expose a patient who's having an aesthetic treatment to potentially a life-threatening illness. So we're going to have all of those measures uh, put in place. But I think we're long, far away from that conversation. And at this point, um, and I'm only running five trials, uh, and one of them, I wanted to point out, Jeff, that you and I are running together, talking about what Roy was saying, how people are all over the map. In that particular study, we as physicians are taking the lead. We as investigators, they are deferring to us to make the decisions and coordinate any changes with the IRB. So whereas we may have some very heavy hitting pharmaceutical companies that have been very much leaders in trying to initiate and give guidance and speak to us almost on a daily basis. And thanks to this um, webinar, I should be ha happy to point out that Allergan just sent an invite to create their own webinar next week. And that is because of your efforts, Jeff, in getting this organized has really elevated and it shows how much we as physicians and researchers are the leaders in these changes, not the sponsors. So with this other uh, protocol that you and I are working on together, for example, I've reached out to them more than once and they still have not indicated any guidance on what's going to happen. Are we going to resume uh, or how do we notify the IRB? And one final point, and David hit upon this, we now have to look at, is all this data going to be thrown out? And what the FDA has said is that they are going to have an FDA review division that's going to allow the sponsors of these trials to modify their statistical analyses so that all the data that we've accumulated thus far for these trials was not thrown away. One of the points that was referred to was the, the, the issue, I think you mentioned it, about monitors visiting and making sure that we're in compliance. And one of that part of that problem has been obviated by the fact that some of our sponsors have access to our digital photographs. So they, they can see the follow-ups and they can get some sense where we're at in terms of the, the clinical response to the various treatments that we're providing. We're also able to provide them remotely uh, the, the forms that they need, all, all the different uh, uh, criteria that have to be fulfilled uh, in terms of the paperwork. So I think we've been able to minimize or eliminate the need for monitoring to some degree. But something to think about going forward is whether uh, there can be digital access to the information that people require to minimize the risk. may be helpful in terms of cost cutting or the need for monitoring on site. I think that's okay. an excellent point, Jeff. I wanted to add to that. I thought that's an excellent point that Roy just brought up. I actually mentioned it to a few of the sponsors. In some ways, I found these remote visits more efficient than the in-person follow-ups. Obviously, we're not talking about patients, the subjects who need treatment, but the ones where it's just a follow-up to check on AEs and so forth, I have found it to be because you have to be on time to the minute and it, you have your, you now have a digital 
CRF or source document right next to the patient's face where you can basically fill out your note while you're conducting the visit and you're done so much quicker than having all that paper. And so I've submitted to them that, you know, necessity can be the mother of invention. And if, any, if there's any silver lining from this, I'm hoping that as Roy said, that it'll be much more economical if they go paperless and fully paperless, and they really streamline and modernize uh, the execution of these studies thanks to our having to make these changes. Well, McCree and Roy, it's fascinating that you bring this up. Uh, years ago, an MD-PhD from the Harvard-Durham program, who was a close friend, left full-time academics at Harvard to join a CRO. I remember at the time, the chairman of dermatology at Harvard berated him publicly for having left the Ivy Tower and joined the dark side. And this fellow, Paul, who's very bright and ahead of the curve, this is a long, long time ago, said, well, thanks very much, I'll see you later. And he was very polite, didn't say a word. Joined a CRO, has since started and sold three companies for worth tens of millions of dollars each that he sold. Some have gone public, some have been sold to private equity. They're leaders in the field of digital clinical trials. His partners were, for example, British Telecom, Microsoft, Apple, all the big companies saw the future of digital clinical trials. Yet even to this day, when we've got some digital CRO documents, they still require source documents and repeat documents, which are all in paper. So we have triplicate. So we don't have digital only, we have digital and. So our cost basis has gone up because they won't get rid of the paper. Yet we have electronic medical records. We don't also write a, a written note so that I can show Vic my terrible handwriting. We gave it up. So McQueen and Roy, you're right. This will change clinical trials irrevocably. Another thing, for example, are investigator meetings. They'll fly 25 people to Houston right. for a weekend. Yeah. All the expenses of the flights, the hotel, the meeting room, breakfast, lunch, dinner, people away from their homes and families for two whole days to do what they could have done in three hours in the comfort of their home or their office. I've never understood it. And the companies have been so adamant that they have to do it in person. It's not the FDA or the regulators that demand it. It's the companies because they're just used to it. They could save a fortune in the clinical trial budget by making these two changes. So hopefully that will be one very positive change from this. The other is just the efficiency of clinical trials. Like as you say, McQueen, doing a digital or telemedicine visit for a follow-up where there's no injection or no intervention, it saves cost and time. You can bunch them all back to back. Uh, it would make things so much better. So I think you're right. Unfortunately, we're gonna go through a lot of pain between now and then because some sponsors will not be in the business any longer. Others will cut their budgets from these trials and not restart them because of their loss. And then others, some of the data will be saved, but unfortunately a lot will be lost. And because most of these are non-vital treatments, we're not treating, let's say, heart failure with all of our patients needing cardiology care during the trial. Even if they're biological psoriasis, those are very tricky, as you know, or eczema. Vic, what do you see of the future for clinical trials in dermatology? Well, I agree. I think the big move is going to be toward electronic records. We do the same thing. We have these binders, and then we have to put things in Epic, and we're duplicating a lot of processes. So I think that's true. And again, these monitor visits where people fly around and sit all day, I think those will probably go away as well. So 
Uh, the question is, will the big institutions adapt to it? They may be slower than the sponsors and the investigators. That's part of the problem, I think, at least for me. David, any other thoughts uh, in guidance to our colleagues, um, as we're learning a lot today from each other, what would you recommend to colleagues who are worried about the future? Should they be laying off their clinical trial staff or should they be planning something for the future around the corner, say in the summer or maybe September, October, when things are moving again? That's a very good question, which I actually have had several calls yesterday and today with uh, other groups, small, large, and also private equity. And people are surprisingly optimistic. Uh, I was actually shocked. I, I'm not sure the reality that we live in changes so frequently, but they seem to be planning ahead. One of the groups I talked to was looking at the issues that they could try to furlough staff, take advantage of the, and I'm not an expert on this either, but the uh, unemployment and the bonuses that they could try to retain people pay perhaps their medical benefits, keep all the institutional knowledge together, and hopefully uh, the trials will be able to resume or some new ones. There we've had a call from a couple of sponsors that want to know when, uh, when we could potentially resume. In Virginia, our current date is June 10th. Uh, so I really don't think anyone knows. I, I believe people are a little bit more optimistic than, than I am.